This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The culture has changed in the 20 years since the release of Stephen Frears' 2000 film High Fidelity. In that time, many aspects of its protagonist, Rob Gordon, played by John Cusack, have not aged well. At best, he's an endearing, albeit sometimes self-indulgent, snob. And at worst, he's selfish, entitled, and a straight-up misogynist. This episode is not concerned with whether or not Rob can be redeemed. We can say with authority that he is a bad dude. We're more interested in a line from the film that we can't get out of our heads. What really matters is what you like, not what you are like. Books, records, films, these things matter. Call me shallow. It's the fucking truth. In this episode, we talk about what Rob's philosophy meant back in 2000. And whether it still rings true today. Back to 2020, a pop culture podcast by Message Heard. I'm Simran Hans, a writer and film critic for The Observer. And I'm Tara Joshi, the music editor at Galdem, and I'm also a critic. This is a show where we revisit the most memorable pop culture from the year 2000. And we explore it with the benefit of 20 years of hindsight. Last week, we talked about the rocky road to the definitive Destiny's Child lineup, as documented in magazine profiles, on MTV Cribs, and in the video for their hit single, Say My Name. Today, we're talking about the film High Fidelity. Based on Nick Hornby's book, which was published in 1995 and set in London, the film adaptation is shot and set in Chicago, and it was directed by British filmmaker Stephen Frears. And the film stars John Cusack, who by the year 2000 had had a pretty broad-ranging career. He'd starred in hits like Gross Point Blank and Being John Malkovich, but his screen persona is still rom-com nice guy. He was and probably still is best known as Lloyd Dobler, who, if you don't know, is the dude who held up a boombox outside his ex's bedroom in Cameron Crowe's Say Anything. I love that movie. He's toxic, but I love it. So for anyone who hasn't Sorry seen- for my pause, because I don't <laughs> love it. So I'm just like, mm, sorry. Okay, so for anyone who hasn't seen High Fidelity, basically Rob is a record store owner and he's also a chronic list maker. And he's just broken up with his long-term girlfriend, Laura. To help him get over it, he decides he's going to revisit his top five heartbreaks and he makes a really big deal about the fact that Laura is not one of them. Yes, because writing down your top five heartbreaks is going to fix them. Well, exactly, yeah. How are you supposed to deal with it? Let me not get into how I deal with heartbreak. (laughs) 
The supporting cast includes his record store minions, Dick, who's played by Todd Luizzo, and Barry, who is brilliantly played by a young Jack Black. There's also a series of Rob's exes and love interests, including Catherine Zeta-Jones and Lisa Bonet as musician Marie Desol. His daughter, Zoe Kravitz, plays Rob in Hulu's TV remake 20 years later, which we should mention has been cancelled after only one series. Towards the end of the episode, we'll talk more about this gender-swapped remake, but first, let's revisit the John Cusack version. To understand it, we need to put Rob into some much-needed pop culture context. So Rob's character is a type that is seen across pop culture. He's obsessive, he's neurotic, he's an unabashed snob, and I would say that that's a description that could fit any number of male leads. If we're being completely honest, maybe a lot of the boys that we grew up fancying. I am thinking about Seth Cohen. See, the problem with Seth Cohen is that I both wanted to be with him, but I also was him. Yeah, I had the exact same issue. It would never have worked if we were together, I think. We would have been far too awkward. So for anybody who tragically missed the OC the first time it came around, Seth Cohen is one of uh, the main characters of that TV show. And he is nerdy obsessed with music loves death cab for cutie and kind of defines himself by his cultural tastes he's the character that i identified with and i think these are the kind of reasons why watching it at the time i felt drawn somehow to rob gordon although i didn't actually watch it at the time because i was eight in 2000 and so perhaps like a little bit too young for it and so i would have watched it when it came out on dvd a couple of years later I'd also read the book, which in hindsight was probably a bit adult for a 10 year old. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was trying to figure out when I would have read the book and I was probably far too young to have read that book. But, you know. Thank you to your parents for not policing your reading. Everything else, yes, but not the reading. (laughs) Um, I want to kind of talk about this quote that Rob says in the movie. He says, what came first, the music or the misery? And he kind of makes this little speech about how we worry about kids playing with guns, but we don't worry about them listening to absolutely devastating, sad pop songs. Mm. He, he sort of says, did I listen to pop music because I was miserable or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Big mood. <laughs> right? That's a kind of line of thought that is carried on in this particular genre of sad man interrogates past heartbreaks, which is, you know, a subgenre of romantic comedy. I'm thinking specifically of 500 Days of Summer when they have this bit that is like maybe a callback to High Fidelity when the voiceover explains the character of Tom, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. The boy, Tom Hansen of Margate, New Jersey, grew up believing that he'd never truly be happy until the day he met the one. This belief stemmed from early exposure to sad British pop music and a total misreading of the movie The Graduate. I need to rewatch that. But I think for me, something. You really don't need to rewatch it. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because when I watched 500 Days of Summer and realistically when I watched High Fidelity, to my mind, the first time round, I was sympathetic to these men and they see themselves as the heroes of their own stories. I think it's only much later that I now realise that actually they're the villains in their own love stories. Or at least they're kind of ignorant to the ways in which their misery and their heartache are often the product of their own doing. I know we'll get onto it a bit later, but I think the conversation about anti-heroes and villains in the new series of High Fidelity is 
really interesting because I think it is playing with the idea of Rob as a villain because they talk about Tony Soprano as a character who you sympathise with even though he's bad and I think it is playing with the fact that years later we now look back at Rob and realise okay we felt sorry for him and kind of endeared to him but were we meant to? Well, that's the question, right? Were we meant to identify Rob as an anti-hero from the beginning? Because it's not necessarily that these characters are set up to be wholly aspirational and, you know, we're supposed to kind of live by their choices and follow their example. But I also don't think that the characters are deliberately unsympathetic, right? I think... He was meant to be somebody who you could somehow map onto and relate to. Even if he wasn't aspirational, he was relatable, I think. An old friend of mine who I remembered was a very big fan of High Fidelity. Um, I reached out to him before recording this episode. And it's really interesting because he was basically like, I kind of feel like it ruined my life because... It ruined his life. That's extreme. Very extreme. He basically felt like Rob was this aspirational character because, you know, he really loves music as well. And so he basically felt like that was some kind of archetype for like how he was meant to enjoy culture and how he was meant to treat women. Did this friend ever make you any mixtapes by any chance? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think I think he yeah, I think he did. Well, I reckon the reason why he's so relatable and likable is the likability hangover that come out of John Cusack's star persona. We do still think of him as Lloyd Dobler. We think of him as this kind of like innocent, nice guy. He's got what I like to call a friendly face. I think he has a really friendly face. Like uh, there is something about any film that he's in. I'll be like, oh, John Cusack's in that. I would watch that. And that that means I've watched Hot Tub Time Machine. So... I kind of wonder if there's a level of intentionality behind the role that he creates in Rob Gordon, because obviously he was a co-writer for High Fidelity. It's not obvious. I did not know that. Well, film critic over here. Um, But um, yeah, so he's one of the people who adapts the screenplay from the book. And there's a scene that I don't remember happening in the book. The bit where um, Charlie, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, is sleeping with someone else and he stands outside the window in the rain staring in and like yelling up at her and I I feel like that's a callback to say anything but it's so much less endearing when he's an adult man He recently actually did an interview in the New York Times, which, you know, I obviously loved because John Cusack, just everything he does. I don't know why he's so endearing still. But anyway, in the Tom Hanks effect should be called the John Cusack effect, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. I think John Cusack doesn't like it as much as Tom Hanks, perhaps. The interviewer was talking to him about the new High Fidelity and asked if he had seen it and said that there was conversation now about whether Rob was actually likable. And John Cusack was actually very receptive to that because he had always been aware that Rob was never meant to be like this out and out hero. Um, And he says, you know, I'm glad that people have changed their view of Rob. If somebody was writing that Rob was a passive aggressive womanizer, I'd be like, all right, somebody got it. I wanted to reveal the flaws of the character. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that's revisionist history on the part of John Cusack. It's to do with this idea of what we would now call toxic masculinity, that there perhaps like wasn't the same language for 
20 years ago. And I think that trying to recontextualize it now kind of brings us into this frustrating circle, right? Where Rob cannot really be acceptable as a hero or as a protagonist that we can map onto now. He just doesn't really fit. And John Cusack can go back and say like, ah, oh, that was all my plan <laughs> all along. And I don't, I don't know if I fully buy that about how like nuanced his performance is in that film. And I guess we can get onto this as we sort of talk about the movie and its legacy. But I don't think it holds up to what I thought it would be. I really loved this movie when I was much younger and haven't seen it in quite a long time. And then when I rewatched it for the episode, I was struck by just how caustic and bitter the character is. And I didn't enjoy watching it in the same way that I'd enjoyed watching it when I was growing up. Admittedly, you know, a time when I, like I said, was identifying with the Rob Gordon character, but had literally no experience of relationships and therefore no experiences of heartbreak. So (laughs) yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that maybe when you have not been through relationships in that way, it's easy to just kind of brush off the way that he's going about it. But then when you watch it again now, he's so awful to some of these women who he revisits. I think it's accepted wisdom, really, that he's not lovable. He's not that misunderstood, but he's bitter and entitled. And I think if you go to the material, whether that's the source material or rewatching the film, that's pretty obvious. You know, when you broke up with me, you broke up with me because I was, I was, to use your charming expression, tight. I cried and I cried and I hated you and when that little shitbag asked me out and I was too tired to fight him off, it wasn't rape because I said okay, but it wasn't far off. You know I couldn't have sex until after college because I hated it so much? That's when you're sex rob. In college! And now you want to have a little chat about rejection. Well, fuck you, Rob. I broke up with her. I rejected her. That's another one I don't have to worry about. I should have done this years ago. Yep. Can I get a check, please? What's more interesting than whether or not Rob sucks, he sucks, is why he exists. There's no way you would get away with a character like that today. Let's talk instead about what he tells us about the noughties. So, Simran, how does this film capture the moment it was made? Well... I don't actually think that this is one of the definitive movies of of the noughties. I think it was pretty commercially successful, critically. I think it did relatively well. But I don't think people look back on it as anything more than a moderately successful cult hit. But in terms of what it tells us about the noughties... It is so of its time. You know, it's set in a used record store. There's this fetishization of physical media and of vinyl at a time where virgin megastores are still king. Napster is just kind of coming and beginning to disrupt things with streaming. But there's a whole school of people who are still clinging to this idea hanging over from the 90s that physical media is the most precious thing that we have. Music is an artifact that we can kind of consume and and a history that we can hold on to. I think another film that also came out in the year 2000 that is an interesting point of comparison is um, Almost Famous, another Cameron Crowe film. Shout out to Cameron Crowe. Yeah, apparently we love Cameron Crowe. Who knew? But I guess the interesting thing with Almost Famous is that in the same way as High Fidelity, you kind of have this reverence for music and this reverence for this sort of bygone era. And also like in Almost Famous, it's a reverence for 
rock journalism, right? Like old school print magazines and physical media in that kind of sense, right? I think when you look at like Naughty's music journalism in the UK, at least, the year 2001, the strokes come along and like they're changing music forever, even though it's kind of the same thing as what's come before, but press froth at the mouth over white guitar bands comparatively, given all this amazing R&B is happening at the time, given all this incredible black music is happening at the time, the platform it gets is not the same in terms of respectability. Um, But anyway, I guess the thing with Almost Famous, maybe it's a point of comparison as well, is the way that they talk about music is a lot more welcoming than the way that Rob Gordon speaks about music. And I think the way that Lester Bangs as played wonderfully by Philip Seymour Hoffman. R.I.P. R.I.P. He basically tells the little kid, I'm referring to him as the little kid, I've forgotten The Patrick Fugit character, right? Yes. Uh, He says to him... William. William, yes. He basically says that everyone is a nerd. Everyone who loves music that much, like there's nothing cool about that. And that's fine. Yeah, whereas I think in High Fidelity, the philosophy is the opposite, right? Like, that's all they have. They're so insecure about themselves that they hide behind their tastes and they define themselves by their tastes and they use that knowledge of the canon as a cultural gatekeeping. Yeah, and even you see it in conversations that he has with Laura, but equally with some of his exes, the way he describes them is by what they listen to. Um, And there is this sort of innate judgment in that. Number two on the top five all-time breakup list was Penny Hardwick. Penny was great looking. And her top five recording artists were Carly Simon, Carol King, James Taylor, Cat Stevens, and Elton John. All of this makes me think of this really amazing New York Times article by Kefela Sanna from 2004, uh, and it's called The Rap Against Rockism. If you have time to like read the whole thing, it's, it's well worth it. But it's kind of this quite passionate defense of mainstream music. And the writer talks about how rock and roll is reduced to a caricature, and that caricature is then used as a weapon. So people who defend rock music so vehemently talk about it as being something that's classic versus pop being a guilty pleasure. They talk about it as something that's authentic versus mainstream music being really cynically artificial. And it puts words to what's basically a racist, imperialist position where we think that the music with guitars and white men is important and special and music by queer people and by black people, disco, pop, R&B, hip hop is somehow lowbrow. And of course that's changed, right? We we now are in a, a post-taste world where the barometers are different. Yeah, but it's interesting because I think there's a lot of chat about us being post-taste now, but I think that's like a, a working thing that's happening right now and everyone's trying to catch up with that and understand what that really looks like. So, so what do we mean by post-taste? Just to be really clear about it. In the year 2020, if you were creating a character who's meant to be a a real music nerd, they would be a music nerd about everything. Like it wouldn't be that there's this idea of good and bad taste because everything is worthy of that reverence. And, And that comes from streaming, right? The omnivorous way we consume music, which is very different to the curated playlists and physical vinyl media that we would like collect in I say we, I was not collecting vinyl at age eight, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I obviously was because I was a music nerd even aged eight. I Were wasn't. You? No, I, d- I, d- I did have uh, 
my first Spice Girls CD, age six. My parents wrote on it, Tara's first pop CD. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah. that is so cute. So Rob's brand of cultural snobbery is very of its time. And obviously cultural gatekeeping still exists. And I guess you could argue that you and I are both gatekeepers because we're critics. But I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about the way that it manifests now. Do you think it looks different today? It presents itself slightly differently, I think. But obviously there are different places for it to manifest. So you have dating apps, um, which obviously then happily get screenshotted and put on Beam Me Up Softboy. So you see all these guys being What surpri- is Beam Me Up Softboy? Do you actually not know Beam Me I Up Softboy? I actually don't know what it is. Oh my God. Oh my God. You have to follow it on Instagram. It's this ludicrous page where they just, it, people send in screenshots. I have sent in screenshots of the really like trash things that men put on dating apps or have like said via text um and sometimes it's genuinely quite toxic but often it's just quite funny because they're genuinely like oh my god i love this band that you've probably never heard of tame impala (laughs) it's just like it's so ridiculous um but yeah that kind of energy is very much still out there um and there's this really good kim kelly article from a few years ago and she's um she predominantly writes about metal music. She's based in the States. And I think this was for Vice and it's called Men Explain Music to Me. And for me as a journalist, it's something that I really related to that I think there's this tendency for men to kind of, and you know, I'm not going to do not all men actually. Yeah, most men do this, um, where you kind of dismiss the idea that women would possibly know more about music than you. So she goes into a record store and wants to buy this, I guess, relatively obscure metal record. Um, And the guy at the record store assumes that it's for her boyfriend. And this kind of idea, I think, yeah, I I think this very much still exists. So it's, it's not gatekeeping exactly but it's kind of like patronizing assumed knowledge that okay sweetie you work in this industry sure like I've I've had men who work in the music industry tell me that I should be grateful because like diversity means that I'm here um that's rude it was very rude um and there's actually a bit in high fidelity when like a girl who works for I think it's Rolling Stone or some music magazine comes into the record shop right and he sort of is secretly impressed by her, but then acts like he's not in a way. He has her on a pedestal because she's a music journalist, but equally kind of wants to show that he knows more about music. Like he makes, I think he starts making her a mixtape actually. Of course he does. But also like this, this it's this idea of ownership. It's like these men feel they can claim ownership to certain bands or certain pop stars. And, and you can almost see it going the other way as well, right? When guys just love to kind of like, deem something mainstream as suddenly acceptable yeah yeah so that i don't know if you've listened to um james acaster's perfect sounds um i have not sorry james um yeah it's like no shade to him because i'm a big fan but um it's based on this book that he wrote about why 2016 is the best year for music he's i think pretty much bought every record that came out in 2016 and So he made a podcast out of it where he will get one of his mates to come on and introduce them to one of the records from that year that they've never listened to. And so the first episode is about Lemonade, Beyonce, 
iconic album, of course. This is actually one of the albums that I discovered in 2016 itself. A little precursor to the 2017 story is that in 2016, I noticed a few really great records, mainstream records, and I don't think it was possible anymore for there to be these big, influential, experimental, boundary-pushing albums coming out in the mainstream by some of the biggest recording artists alive today. So I bought Lemonade and completely changed my mind on popular music. I got hot sauce in my bag, swag. But he kind of is surprised that he liked it. And he talks about how it feels like an album which both serious music critics and diehard Beyonce fans could like. And it really speaks to this idea that is probably subconscious that you can't be both. The idea that someone who is a music critic could not be a Beyonce fan because a music critic ultimately is this like white dude. I think in High Fidelity, like you said, it's it's sort of a very similar idea, but just manifesting differently. And you can really see it, I think, in the sort of valorization of rules and lists. And, you know, Rob has like rules for how to make a perfect mixtape. And he's like, you got to start with a banger and then you got to take it up a notch and then you got to like cool it down and you got to have a big finish. And to be fair, those are good rules. But this idea of, of you know, what is objectively good and, and what is objectively kind of legitimate is all about keeping the canon exclusive. And I, I'm thinking of the bit in High Fidelity when Jack Black absolutely just goes off at this customer who comes in trying to like buy his daughter a Stevie Wonder record. And he's like, your daughter does not want to own a copy of I Just Called to Say I Love You. Like she hates that song. And just sort of thinking that he knows best. Which is crazy because who doesn't love Stevie Wonder? Like one of the best recording artists of our lifetime. But then, but then in the movie, they play a Stevie Wonder song in the credits. So a different song. Oh, they're playing with us. So maybe it is ironic. Um, Tara, what do you think Rob would be like in this post-genre world? I think he would be one of those guys who loves everything now. You, you know, the way that Pitchfork has kind of shifted around to being like very like pro Taylor Swift in love with Carly Rae Jepsen. Well, we don't have to imagine because Hulu remade the film into a 10-part TV show, which came out this year. This is what 2020 Rob sounds like. Okay, so here's how not to plan a career. One, split up with girlfriend. Two, ditch college. Three, go to work in struggling record shop. Four, become owner of said record shop and stay there for the rest of life. And five, well, there is no five. So the 2020 remake, what have they updated? How have they reimagined Rob? Well, Rob is played by Zoe Kravitz, so Rob is now a black woman, so that, that's a An change. An extremely hot black woman. So hot. You know, okay, I was singing the praises of John Cusack and how endearing he is, but... Um, His clothes are very bad in that movie. Yeah, her clothes are so great in this TV but series. But they're actually weirdly the same, right? They're weirdly the same. Very, but yeah, they're like t-shirt and the long sleeve t-shirt underneath that kind of vibe yeah exactly and like the long leather jacket mm. but it, it looks good on her and somehow it does not look fashion on him cosmetically they've they've updated it but also you know obviously putting a, a black woman in the lead role of this archetypal white man is that fair to say archetypal white man i kind of think so yeah um it is a deliberate attempt to kind of play with our idea of who we think a cultural snob looks like, right? And it was just kind of gratifying the idea that, oh yeah, that there's a black woman, there's a woman of color, because who's 
a big music geek because I can't really think of having seen that properly before. Lane Kim, I, I take it back. Lane Justice Kim, Gilmore for Girls. Lane Kim. Justice from for Lane. Gilmore Girls. It's also interesting though because that the swap makes it harder to believe some of the things that she says. So when she talks about how she's not interesting enough for one of her exes. Another thing that they've changed is that she's also bisexual. So um, one of her exes is a woman. And she talks about how she never felt like she was interesting enough for her. And then you're like looking at Zoe Kravitz and you're like, really? But I think like the show makes a distinction between being somebody who sort of is in these dysfunctional relationships and being somebody who like can't get a partner right like she never we never question her attractiveness or whether she can like get laid with whoever she wants but what's different is that every relationship that she ends up in is somehow tainted and that I think is the genius of the tv show that it keeps that like element of the original Rob Gordon spirit you know that bitterness and that kind of gloominess is carried through in in the Zoe Kravitz character and of course there's a legacy there as well that they're playing with because her mum is in the film. Lisa Bonet is Marie de Salle. What do you think about how they updated the the sort of Marie de Salle character? I really liked him. So in the book, for context, is obviously set in the UK and the musician love interest is an American woman. And so she has this kind of mystery to her for Rob because she's she's exotic somehow. And then in the film, they update that by making her a black woman, like, which is kind of gross. Now we think about it. But it's quite funny to upend that now and have a skinny Scottish white guy as the exotic love interest. And I think he really he really works, actually. Um, and uh, what's the what's the cover song that they um, updated to? Because in the original High Fidelity, Marie Dessart famously sings Baby I Love Your Way, an absolutely tragic, like embarrassing tune that she makes really cool. And it's a boys to men song, I think. Yeah, I think they make him um, sing in, in the remake. I used to hate this song. Yeah. Now I kind of love it. I also think another stroke of genius in the casting is Divine Joy as the Jack Black character and the way the TV show swaps Come On Eileen for Walking On Sunshine I think it's just perfect Yo, Joe was so fucking crazy I had a fucking dream about this shit last night were you wearing the overalls? Yeah, and what's so crazy, I was had a dream about it, and yeah. then I, yeah, man. And then I was like, yo, I gotta listen to this song. And I had, to, I had to listen to it and see if I really like it, and I forgot. This song is dope as shit! Jack Black's role, and now Devine's role, is kind of comic relief, but also there is like a sensitivity to both of them that they're they're both very loud about their opinions about music but also both aspiring musicians and everyone else in their circle kind of makes fun of them for that um doesn't really think that that's going to be good or a real thing and then in both their plots you see this moment of them actually performing and actually being kind of excellent it's very vindicating to see but i guess there's kind of a trope at play with her which you do see in other tv shows where you have like the dark-skinned black woman who kind of is there as like 
the funny person, but who doesn't really get character development in the same way. Yeah, it's like the funny fat friend who doesn't have her own romantic arc. Their other co-worker, Simon, he gets his own bottle episode where we kind of find out about his romantic history and, you know, his past relationship with Rob. Um, And we just don't get the same character development or attention given to Charisse. And what's interesting is, and I don't want to be cynical, but it's interesting that now that it's been cancelled, now they're like, oh, well, series two was going to be all about her character development. (laughs) I guess we'll never know. Go figure. Please, someone go and buy it off Hulu. I need to know. I need answers. Speaking of the come on Eileen slash walking on sunshine cue, I want to talk about some of the ways they've updated the soundtrack with the show. It's way more pop. There's Sinead O'Connor, there's Blondie, there's Bowie, there's Talking Heads. It's way more black, it's way more mainstream, and it reflects the kind of way people listen to music now. So there's a scene where Rob is talking to this sort of old school music fan who's awful, and He's, you know, busy talking about Mick Jagger and then he starts talking about the wings and um, just he's so surprised that she would know about them and that she would actually correct him. But equally, she likes pop music. If you look in the record store at the vinyl behind her, you know, you see Tyler, the creator goblin is there. And then, you know, they have conversations about Os Mutantes and like Caetano Veloso. Like it's so much broader but then you could argue that it's in a way more basic right there's a moment in one of the early episodes i think it might even be the first episode where rob is in the bar on a date with this guy played by jake lacy the nice guy in every single romantic comedy you've ever seen and um fleetwood max dreams plays and he is sort of like they both kind of bond over the song and then she it turns out knows all this random trivia about it and he's like oh i i just like the song and it's it's an interesting form of her asserting her power and her knowledge over him even about a very mainstream topic right yeah i think that happens quite a lot throughout the show with songs of like different levels like you have the bit where simon's talking about sylvester and he just goes so in depth with it and it's like it's kind of a magical moment i think but then even just the scene where she's sitting in bed calling up jake lacy's character and i get so lonely is playing and by janet jackson iconic song but yeah amazing use of it as well right really great use of it big mood But I think it's interesting because, yeah, in the original version, that breadth of songs like would never have happened. But again, coming back to a point I think we've been making throughout, I think this broadness of taste is something that is a lot more in keeping with what being a music snob means in 2020. Like to have that level of knowledge about so many different things, I think is kind of aspirational for me, at least. That makes me sound terrible. (laughs) Is there anything else in the in the show that you feel like would not have happened in the original beyond the kind of music choices in the tv series there's a moment where Sharice gets really upset with a customer and it leads to this big debate about whether they should be selling a michael jackson record hey what's what's going on this person who's clearly never been on the internet is trying to buy a fucking michael jackson album for her boyfriend it's his birthday. Which album? Which album? Off the wall. 
I'm very sorry, but I don't think I can sell that to you. Oh, okay. Ah, but those fucking horn charts on working day and night. All right, all right, yeah, fuck it, fuck it, let's do it. Okay, great. I guess what that moment reveals is that even today, what you listen to still says something about who you are and what your position is and what your politics are, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting because whereas in the film High Fidelity, what you listen to is an assertion of who you are, but in like a, I am better than you, I'm cooler than you. But now the way that that presents itself is like, can you listen to music made by someone who is known to be abusive? And it's a very different kind of, conversation obviously and it's a lot more complicated I guess the lines around what is now acceptable to like that feels political in a very different way now hold up hold up, hold up. so this man gets a pass for horn charts I'll give a pass to anyone who's scaled mental libraries they were Quincy's charts anyway exactly how does it benefit society to hold Quincy's genius hostage just because the dude that's sang over his shit ended up being a full-blown child molester allegedly whoa where'd you get that from Rob from fucking, fucking convenient opinions are us. Okay, you still listen to a dude who raps in a MAGA hat. What this exchange shows us is that the idea that you are what you listen to means something else today. It's something that's more political and something that's actually worth real debate rather than just being like an aesthetic signifier. And it means that there's a lot more pressure on pop musicians as well now. Famously, Taylor Swift came under a lot of pressure for not telling people who she was voting for, which I think would have been kind of an unthinkable pressure to place on a pop star 20 years ago. If we go back to this idea of rockism, I think it's worth saying that, you know, the natural response to that is poptimism. Poptimism is the idea that pop music is just as valuable and important and worthy of analysis as rock music is. But I think we can fall into a kind of trap with treating pop music in the same way because it's not necessarily about treating things with equal reverence. It's about questioning that canonization of music and culture anyway, I think. And I, I guess it's interesting working as a critic during this time because that sort of canonization means that a lot of pop stars kind of push back against criticism now. There are vehicles for them to do that thanks to social media. So you'll have someone like Lana Del Rey who doesn't like a review and she will post about that and suddenly her fans are... Incensed. Incensed is a nice way of putting it, I guess. But yeah, I social media has completely changed the relationship that fans have with artists. Yeah, because there's a direct line between the artist and the fan and there's no need for intermediaries like record store owners to bring you closer to the musician. You can just interact with them in a, a way more direct way. I don't know if that is partly why that there has been a lot more acceptance suddenly. Possibly this is also due to the fact that women are finally getting a seat at the table. But now there is this acceptance that actually to be a teenage fangirl is not something to be frowned upon. It's not less than being a white dude who knows about rock music. Like, it's the same. This has been written about brilliantly in a, a book called Fangirls by a friend of the pod, Hannah Ewan. So if you haven't read that, you should definitely check that out. Yeah, you should definitely read that. It's sort of inspired by this tweet by Jessica Hopper, who's also an excellent music journalist. Replace the word fangirls with experts and then see what you get. I think that what we're seeing now, hopefully, is this dismantling of the gatekeepery music snobbery. 
I think what feels really contemporary about the new High Fidelity is that it changes who is the gatekeeper. It changes the perspective of the person making those decisions and deciding what the canon is. In 2020, it feels like the opinions of fangirls hold just as much weight, if not more, than a 30-something record store owner like Rob Gordon. for this week we really hope you're enjoying the show so far and we would love to hear your feedback leave a review five stars only please you can get in touch on instagram and twitter or you can recommend an episode topic to us via the link in our show notes which is where you'll also find links to everything we've been referencing in this episode a reminder our handle everywhere is at mh2020 and you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook we'll be back next week talking about the launch of big brother faking it and the rise of reality tv see you then 2020 is a Message Heard production. Written and presented by me, Tara Joshi, and mixtape expert, Simran Hans. Produced and edited by Jake Atayevich and Emily Wally. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley. 